it's take two for the Vancouver Canucks with fans back at Rogers Arena as they welcome the Philadelphia Flyers to town. It is the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Joined as always, I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by the senior writer for The Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks, Thomas Drantz. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, and of course, you can always interact with the show and get in on the conversation. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, and... Look, Drancer, the name of the show is the Canucks Hour. We're the home of the Canucks. The vast majority of our shows are going to be exclusively focused on the goings-ons and the latest news with the Vancouver Canucks. But we are also a hockey show. The Canucks are an NHL team. And as we all know, there was a, a massive, massive story in the world of hockey in the NHL yesterday. And so... When something like that comes up, you really just can't ignore it. No. You have to address it. It takes precedence over the Vancouver Canucks today. And that is, of course, everything that has unfolded in the last 48 hours with the Chicago Blackhawks, with Kyle Beach, who came forward, revealed himself as the John Doe in the Chicago Blackhawks report, gave an extraordinarily brave and compelling interview with, with Rick West had on TSN last night. That is the story around the NHL. That's where we have to start. And as I mentioned, I think, the most important place to start is with Kyle Beach. It's been said by a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people smarter than me and, and with a bigger platform than me. But first and foremost, I just want to start by saying what an incredible amount of courage on display mm -hmm. from Kyle Beach to do that. And I hope that it leads to healing for him and and f for a lot of other people as well. Yeah, Kyle Beach, uh, of course, is from British Columbia, right? Played in the WHL. Yep. And it's very important for all survivors of sexual assault to know they're not alone, right? We have all have a part to play in making sure that the next Kyle Beach, right, doesn't feel isolated and powerless for 11 years before sharing their truth. And so that begins by believing survivors, by letting them know that they're not alone, uh, and by insisting on consequences for abusers and the fallout from that, from the Reed Shar report, um, you know, released in full by the Blackhawks. This week, you know, that's still unfolding. Uh, Florida Panthers coach Joel Quenville shows up frequently in that report. Yep. He's meeting with Gary Bettman probably right now, uh, a personal meeting. And as the NHL released when they reacted to the report earlier this week, Quenville was permitted to coach yesterday. Um, and then Kevin Dayoff, according to my colleague at The Athletic, Pierre Lebrun, will have his meeting on Monday with the league. Um, yeah, fact of the matter is, is that this does take precedence <laughs> over over hockey. This is the only story that matters in, in some respect um, in the hockey world at the moment, and that's just because we're empathetic people and we love this game and we don't want to see people go through this game and get chewed up and taken advantage of uh, and treated the way that clearly multiple Blackhawks were, but in particular Kyle Beach, who shared his story with, with Rick Westhead yesterday uh, a, a heroic um, decision to put a face to yeah. you know a, a situation that is completely beyond the pale and unacceptable and has already led to the de facto expulsion from the NHL of four Blackhawks executives with more fallout to come in and the days ahead. 
you say followed there, Drancer, and when the report was released on Tuesday, I believe it was Tuesday around 11 o'clock Pacific time, it's a big report, over 100 pages, so so it was, it was going to take time for people to pick through it, but right away, in the hours after the report came out, it became very, very clear that that story was not going to end with the dismissal of a few Blackhawks executives, right, or, or, and a $2 million fine to the Blackhawks organization. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was obvious right away, as the hockey world started to digest the contents of that report, that... We're going to be feeling the aftershocks of this, and we're going to be seeing consequences kind of ripple out from this across the NHL and across the world of hockey for a while. And the first really clear example of that was last night where, for some reason, and again, this has been talked about a lot already, but it is absolutely baffling to me that Joel Quenville was behind the bench for the Florida Panthers against the Boston Bruins Last night, it is, as you said, Joel Quenville is a name. He was the coach, of course, of the Chicago Blackhawks at the time for years afterwards as well. His name comes up in in some very damning ways in the report. He was scheduled to meet with Gary Batman. That's probably happening right now, as you said. The fact that nobody stepped in, including Quenville himself, quite frankly, to make sure he wasn't behind the bench for that game last night, it is baffling. It's embarrassing for the league. I really don't know what they were thinking. And then also I will say to have him, if he's going to coach the game, but he for whatever reason wasn't made available to the media, I, I don't know how you can have it both ways like that, right? Like he either had to be completely removed or he had to be there and be able to hold a cannibal to face the media afterwards. But that decision, it look, there's been a lot of tone deaf and inappropriate decisions made by the NHL surrounding this case, that one really stood out as just a complete head-scratcher for me last night. The, you know, fundamental focus, I think, we we do need to keep it on, right, Beach and on the 16-year-old victim uh, of Brad Aldrich, yep. which came later after, you know, the Blackhawks dismissed him, but, um, you know, vouched for his performance, including Joel Quenville in the wake of that season. Uh, right after the Blackhawks were aware of what had happened between Aldrich and, and Beach, Aldrich was still permitted a day with the Stanley Cup. He still celebrated with the team. Um, his name is still engraved on the Stanley Cup yep. alongside those of the other 2009-2010 Blackhawks. Um, you know, shocking, right? That's shocking stuff. And that doesn't, like, it. unfortunately it takes, not not unfortunately, just the fact of the matter is, is that it takes a village, right, to protect someone like that for this long. And, you know, there's a duty of care that the league has, and they've decided, or, or clearly there was a decision made to have a follow-up personal meeting between Batman and Quenville. We don't know what the contents or the consequences will be coming out of that. But in the interim, you know, the league didn't take the step of suspending the people that they said, you know, the two gentlemen who who we know were in at least one meeting based on the Rechar report discussing this issue um, and deciding not to take immediate action, and that's Kevin Sheveldayoff and that's Joel Quimble, but the league took no proactive action to remove those, you know, people, those, those men from their roles pending further meetings with the league. And, you know, I, I don't understand that. And, and as you said, right, I mean, there was an era where people would resign. Like yep. where people would resign when something like this came to light because, you know, of, of a personal pride and a personal sense of, of what their job entailed and what their responsibilities entailed. Um, that didn't happen, nor, nor so did the league take proactive stance, nor so did the Panthers step in. And, and so you had, you know, a, a pretty grim 
episode last night for the league. Like, honestly, a, a really unacceptable one. And as I sort of think through it, you know what, I, I'm reminded a little bit of covering the, you know, uh, the BLM protests yep. that ultimately suspended a couple of days of play based on a player-driven movement in the bubble, in the Western bubble during September, like it was early September, late August of 2020. And in that situation, too, as, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks declined to take the court in the wake of that Kenosha shooting as, you know, other leagues rippled out, like the NHL was the last league playing. And and in part, it was because the NHL themselves decided not to take a proactive approach, right? They, they thought it should be a player movement. And so there was this moment that shouldn't have happened um, where the league, the NHL itself, was a little bit too slow to report uh, or to react to a news story and a situation, a moral situation that existed sort of without outside the bounds of hockey. And that's sort of part of the problem. Like, it can't be about hockey sometimes when situations are larger than hockey. And hockey, the hockey culture, this hockey world we live in, always is like on the ice. We're keeping our focus on the ice. We're keeping our focus on, like, that's sort of drilled into everybody. But there are moments where you have to take stock of humanity, like the humanity outside of your narrow viewpoint. Um, You know, that's honestly part of what's at the root of some of what enabled... Um, you know, this situation to uh, be unaddressed over the course of 11 years. And I think it's part of what has led the NHL to not be as proactive as they should have been in addressing it just in the last 48 hours. Well, and I believe Joel Quenville in his pregame talk with the media even talked about, you know, oh, we have to eliminate all distractions. And, well, that was a big part of the problem initially with Kyle Beach and the Chicago Blackhawks, right, was that these incredibly serious allegations and these – really horrific the horrific things that were done to Kyle Beach they were treated as a distraction right oh no this is something we can't talk about we can't ensure any accountability we can't you know hand out any consequences because it would be a distraction to our hockey team because it would be a distraction to what we're doing on the ice and look I understand that this, these are high performance athletes and they're extremely motivated and the organizations are extremely motivated but there has to be a point where you allow things to be a distraction when when they're necessary right when it is necessary to distract yourself from hockey because you have to ensure that everyone is safe in your organization that that the processes to hold people people accountable are being followed there are there are things that it's okay to be distracted by and i thought it was just again extremely tone deaf of Joel Quenville to kind of roll that excuse out yesterday oh i'm just trying to help the team avoid any distractions it's like that was a big part of the issue uh, uh, initially with right. Kyle Beach. And uh, on Twitter, Mike Jewell t- uh, tweets at me, says, uh, I heard Frank Cervelli on Halford and Bruff this morning say that maybe the reason Quenville was coaching last night because it would admit guilt if he wasn't coaching. And Mike says, I'm not trying to justify the action, just trying to kind of brainstorm possible reasons why he was on the bench. But the thing is... We, we, don't, we don't need to brainstorm reasons for that. No. Like, the fact is, is that... You know, there's there's a ton of factors involved. I mean, beyond that also, I mean, Joel Quimble's one of the highest paid coaches in this league and has four years remaining on a contract beyond this. I mean, there's no question that there's tens of millions of dollars worth of liability um, at stake here, not to mention legacies, not to mention future endorsement opportunities. I mean, you know, the the fallout from this, there, the stakes are high, but that doesn't, you know, again, the stakes are always high in this sport. They're always high. It doesn't sort of wash away anyone's obligation to do what's very clearly the right thing. But also, Drancer, I, I completely agree with you, but we've see, we see this all the time, that 
a, a person or a player or a coach steps away from a team pending an investigation. And that is not an admission of guilt, right? We understand that it's not an admission of guilt. It's just the right thing to do. And I, I go back to a situation, and this is one that's tied to the Kyle Beach and the Chicago Blackhawks, but the Akeem Aliou. Uh, incident with Bill Peters when Akeem Aliou was with the Rockford team, who, who of course were the AHL affiliates of the Chicago Blackhawks at the time. Aliou's allegations against Peter, they came out during a game that the Calgary Flames were playing when Bill Peters was the coach of the Calgary Flames. And what happened was immediately after the game, Brad Trey Living said, Bill Peters is not going to be with the team. He's not going to be coaching while we do an investigation, right? Like, that is a thing that can happen. And the Florida Panthers had the ability to say, Without judging anyone, without prejudging anyone or finding anyone guilty, we are going to separate Joel Quenville from the team while we follow up and while we analyze these new facts that came to light this week. The fact of the matter is they chose not to do that and the NHL chose not to do that. And I really just completely cannot understand how they whiffed on a decision like that. Now, the Quenville part of it is one thing. And and again, we've, we've heard the phrase, you know, tip of the iceberg thrown around it's very clear that there's going to continue to be repercussions and consequences and new revelations that come out as a result of this investigation it was also i thought yesterday yesterday i think is going to be a touchstone day for the league for years to come both because of the courage of kyle beach but also the response or lack of adequate response that we saw from around the league, right? And it just struck me. I'm not necessarily going to call out individual players, although, you know, a lot of the focus, of course, is on Patrick Kane and Jonathan Tays in Chicago. But we saw a lot of coaches and a lot of players asked about this yesterday after their games. And just the the total inability or almost total inability league-wide for anybody to talk about these things empathetically, for anybody to talk about them with the kind of the weight that they deserve, it was really striking for me. And it was not a good look, obviously, for the NHL or the world of hockey. And it's just one of those things. Eventually, as you were saying, Drancer, we have to accept that you cannot seal hockey off from the rest of the world forever and pretend that nothing outside of the rink exists. There has to be an ability to confront these things head on. And I just, again, even going beyond the Chicago Blackhawks, just league-wide, I thought an inability to do that was really on full display yesterday. Yeah, I mean, you have to be able to develop fully formed people. Like, within an industry, within a sport, you have to be able to develop fully formed people who understand sports' role or hockey's role in their life and are able to compete to the fullest extent without completely sublimating their own values within a, an ethos of, you know, win at all costs. Because winning at all costs, I mean, there may be short-term glory associated with that, but there is no legacy associated with that. Yeah. You know, like, legacy comes from being decent above and above and beyond, um, sorry, above and beyond everything else. I just want to read an uns- or no, this t- is a text from Reg. He said, I found it absolutely gut-wrenching listening to Kyle Beach apologize to somebody, and he's referring to yep. the interview Beach did with TSN, or with Rick Westhead, TSN's Rick Westhead. Apologize to somebody, and he didn't do enough for the other victim. When he's a victim, I sit here driving trying to figure out what is wrong with people that we could treat someone in this way and make them feel like they've done something wrong when they've been wronged. And I just want to react to this tweet because, you know, everyone else who's made a public statement, right? I I notified my superior, right? Yeah. I notified my superior. Um, You know, that guy did an awful lot for my career was the quote from Patrick Kane discussing Stan Bowman. It's like on and on down the list, there's only one person we've seen take responsibility and it's the last guy Kyle who Beach. should be taking responsibility. Yeah. Like, all of these folks passing the buck at the moment, 
who participated in covering this up for 11 years could learn an awful lot from the courage that Kyle Beach has shown. Yeah, and Langford Jeff texts in with a similar uh, point. He says, sounds very similar to what all the hockey community said after Sheldon Kennedy. Sounds like nothing has changed. No one has said sorry except for Kyle. It's brutal. That's from Langford Jeff, 650-650. Keep sending your texts in on this conversation. It's a really difficult conversation always, but it's also so necessary to have. And that's something that a lot of people picked up on, the fact that Kyle Beach, of all people, felt compelled to apologize and it's something that has been so absent from everyone else's response right as you said Drancer, everyone else has has tried to say look it wasn't me hey i wasn't the person who was supposed to deal with this i I, look i i told my superior what else do you want me to do again it's just the lack of accountability the lack of uh, of willingness to actually look these things in the eye and, and try to deal with them in the moment it's kicking the can down the road and hoping it goes away and if it weren't for Rick Westhead and Katie Strang and some of the local reporters on the ground in Chicago, I mean, this is 11 years old at this point, right? It probably would have been successfully swept under the rug except for some exceptionally dedicated and talented uh, journalists doing the work. Well, and some very important whistleblowers, including Paul yep. Vincent, uh, a longtime NHL skating coach, um, very well-respected guy, was a former police officer and, you know, has always had a particular bent toward protecting mistreated children right like that's a core mission in his life his commentary pushed this story forward he he deserves to be mentioned here too um you know because his courage here in coming forward even even, you know and yes it took a long time but his courage in coming forward propelled the story and got us to a point where you know yesterday um kyle beach was able to share the story um you know one one hopes that there is some sense of weight removed from that uh, becoming public. And, you know, also one hopes that there is, well, first of all, there's already been some consequences for those responsible. Hopefully that will continue in the days ahead. Yeah, it's, it's again, this story, this story's not going anywhere, and nor should it. It is a massive, massive story. We're going to continue to see the ripple effects of it. And you, you just hope that ultimately – it leads to the NHL growing, the game of hockey growing, the culture of hockey growing and becoming better. But it's hard right now. It's hard to see any of the those silver linings because it's just such a crushing and difficult story to confront. And the last thing I want to point out, Drancer, is, you know, I mentioned the Kim Aliu and the, the allegations and the racist abuse he suffered at the hands of Bill Peters a little bit earlier. That happened earlier in the 09-10 season with Rockford, right, who, of course, were the the AHL affiliates of the Chicago Blackhawks. So that's the same season, same organization where this was happening. And Akeem Aliou made those allegations almost two years ago. It'll be two years ago in November. We're still waiting for the NHL to release its investigation or to finish its investigation and release its findings. And obviously there's going to be a ton of focus on what's happening with the Chicago Blackhawks and the Kyle Beach story, but I, I just don't want us to lose sight of holding the NHL's feet to the fire on other stories as well, right, including Akeem Aliou. And I know the allegations are of a different type, they're of a different variety, but it's so important. We've seen the example of what journalists and media and fans holding teams in the league to account can do. We've seen it play out with Kyle Beach, and I think we have to hopefully hold the league to that same standard uh, with Akeem Aliou and, and demand that they do release some findings into that investigation, which, again, is almost two years old at this point. Well, and, I mean, the seasons separating the 
Alu incident and the beach incident are negligible, right? We're yeah. talking about a 12-month span in yeah. which both of those incidents take place within one organization. And to this point, the punishment is $2 million. The punishment for, you know, a variety of different things, whether it's testing players outside the combine or signing an illegal back-diving contract has been far larger for other teams. Uh, I don't really understand that part of this either, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, that's that's one that stood out for a lot of people. We have people texting in saying as well, like they've, they've handed out bigger fines than that for seemingly much less important matters. So, I, I don't know. It's the, the punishment is one. There's, there's so many different strands of this conversation. As I said, it's not going anywhere. We're going to keep having it on this station, I know, on this show as, as, the, uh, you know, as the situation demands. But, again, just to bring it back to where we started, you, you just have nothing but respect and appreciation for what Kyle Beach was able to do. And I hope, of all things, first and foremost, that he's in a better spot and that what he did can help a lot of survivors out there as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I hope that us talking about this too, right? And yep. you never know who you're reaching. You never know who you're listening. You never know what other people have gone through in their lives. So, again, you know, just want to reiterate, it's very important, right, for all survivors of sexual assault to know that you're not alone. And, you know, I, I think, again, we all have a part to play, right? We all have a part to play in making sure stuff like this doesn't happen, whether it's, you know, it starts, though, with believing people, right? Yep. It starts, though, with believing people and, and also holding holding those responsible accountable for that and then also creating an environment in your own life where someone would feel comfortable coming forward to you, you know what I mean, to being the person who can break the chain within whatever organization you inhabit. And, and that's really tough. Uh, that's a tough standard. I don't think that's a standard... Um, any of us can say with 100% certainty that we've always uh, been able to reach, but it's something to aspire to. It's something that requires constant commitment, mm -hmm. not just every few years when something happens. It has to be something that you're thinking about, something that you're striving towards as an individual, as an organization, all the time. The NHL and its teams have a long, long way to go in that respect, as we saw just, just the latest evidence of yesterday, but hopefully this is at least the first step down that road. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drant, senior writer for The Athletic, covering the Vancouver Canucks. We are live at Rogers Arena, where about half an hour ago the Canucks wrapped up their morning skate. We're going to break just a little bit earlier than normal today. Lots to dive into from the Canucks morning skate. We'll get you all the lineup notes, who's in the lineup, who's out of the lineup, and we will look ahead to tonight's home game against the Philadelphia Flyers. It's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, senior writer for The Athletic, covering the Vancouver Canucks, my co-host as always. Thank you to everyone who texted in, who responded on Twitter, online, about our conversation off the top of the show about the Chicago Blackhawks, Kyle Beach, Joel Quenville, everything happening with that extremely serious story in the NHL right now. We appreciate the feedback we appreciate your thoughts. It's a, As we said when we were talking about it, it's such a tremendously important conversation to have, and we really appreciate all of you being a part of that conversation with us. But as you just heard coming back there, it is a Vancouver Canucks game day. We are the Canucks Hour. We, go, we are going to turn our attention to what's happening right now on the ice at Rogers Arena and, of course, what will be happening on the ice later tonight 
at Rogers Arena when, you know, not quite as big a deal as the the first game back with fans, but still game number two with fans in the regular season back at Rogers Arena, Drancer. And it's uh, an early season rematch with the Philadelphia Flyers. They'll wrap up their season series with the Flyers tonight. Some interesting developments from the morning skate. And let's start with the forward group where... You know, midway through that Minnesota Wild game, we saw Travis Green shake up the forward lines pretty significantly, right? We saw the lotto line reunited. And I know in our discussion of the game yesterday, we had a lot of fans texting in, and you can get in on the conversation, 650-650, saying, listen, just put the lotto line together from the get-go. Let them try to develop that chemistry that we've seen in the past. Right now, Travis Green not inclined to agree with that line of thinking because at morning skate today, he had... Elias Pettersson skating with Niels Hoaglander and Justin Bailey, while the Silly Pod Colson remains with JT Miller and Brock Besser going into tonight's game. Yeah, and it's an interesting dynamic here because I think we know we're going to see some lotto line. Like, I think yep. we know for sure we're going to see some lotto line. Uh, last last game, Pettersson took the warm-up skate with Matthew Highmore and then played twice as many minutes with Brock Besser than he did with Highmore, right? I, I would think that that could happen again, particularly in the event that Niels Hoaglander's not going like like he was on Tuesday, right? For the first time all season, Niels Hoaglander sort of turned in a game that wasn't great, right? That wasn't an A-plus grade yep. for him. And then it's a big shot for Bailey, right? Like, Bailey's going to bring some speed to that line. I, I mean, I think the offensive calibration of that line makes a ton more sense than it did with Highmore on it. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think in the case of Pod Colson with Miller and Besser, and in the case of Bailey with Pedersen and Hoaglander, you know, these lines will play as much as they're effective, you know, and and granted Besser, Miller, and Pod Colson was effective and they still got away from it, yep. but b- because they wanted to reunite the lotto line, but, you know, e- in the event that, uh, in the event that either line clicks, I do think we could see their ice time sort of tick up a little bit, big opportunity tonight for Pod Colson again but also for Bailey. Yeah, interesting to see Justin Bailey. We talked about his strong debut for the Canucks yesterday. A lot of that had to do with his work on the penalty kill, but he gets rewarded a chance to at least start the game, skating alongside Elias Pettersson and Niels Hoaglander, two of the team's extremely talented offensive players. So that's a fantastic opportunity for Justin Bailey. I, I, I will admit I find it a little frustrating because, again, you just know these lines are going to be broken up at some point, and... You know, I, I imagine there are a lot of fans hearing them and seeing them on Twitter and saying, what's going on here? Just put the lines that you want together to start the game. I do think one of the underlying factors here is Jason Dickinson is still out, right? And Jason Dickinson, of course, a center playing down the middle for the Canucks. With him out, with Brandon Sutter still out, you look who's playing down the middle at the morning skate. It's Horvat, Miller, Pedersen, and Lamico. Those are really the four centers that this team has to put out on the ice. So <laughs> the I only options. They're the only options. So when you when you when you think of it like that, Travis Green is almost compelled to break up the lotto line so that Miller and Pedersen can both center their own line. And I actually think Travis Green would love to be able to keep these lines together all night. It's just if what happens against Minnesota, where you get down and you have to chase things, happens, then all of a sudden you have to throw them in a bit of a blender and you just kind of have to survive with a line that doesn't have a dedicated center now. Well, don't forget, too, that the Philadelphia Flyers are first in the NHL in faceoff percentage and not by a little bit, by like 3%, right? And that's been a theme there. I mean, you can go back multiple seasons, and they are number one in the NHL over several years, right? Like over several years, they're at a 55% yep. 
face-off team, Couturier wins Couturier a ton of them. is a monster right? in, the, and, in the circle, yeah. And that's been an issue for the Canucks, who, you know, traditionally have been really good in the dot, but when you lose Beagle and when you lose Sutter, uh, it may improve your club's overall five-on-five form, right? That, uh, but it does hurt you in the center, uh, in in – Sorry, in terms of the opening puck battle that begins every shift. So, you know, we'll see sort of where this goes. I I suspect we'll see Lotto line again, especially in the event that the Canucks go get uh, down at any point in this game. And then, you know, the thing to note here, right, we're watching Philadelphia skate pretty, pretty thinly attended morning skate because they played last night. They played last night and beat the Edmonton Oilers, and I thought they were better than the Edmonton Oilers. I know the Oilers sort of left that game talking about how they thought they'd done enough to win. I don't think they got much in terms of inside looks on Philadelphia's defensive structure, and that Oilers team, like, they are high octane. That is a great offense. So we saw this Canucks team have trouble translating zone time into scoring chances against Minnesota earlier this week. We just saw Philadelphia do an awfully good job of that against a more potent offensive team than Vancouver is. That suggests to me that tonight could be a bit of a challenge in terms of getting off the schneid and beginning to generate the types of pressure, the types of looks that this team needs to generate if they're going to start to string wins together yeah. on this homestand. It's it's the same conversation that we've been having Really, especially since the Minnesota game, but going back before that, right? This team needs to find a way to generate those high-danger offensive looks. And, you know, just a very minor tweak to the lineup, really, with Bailey and, and Highmore switching places uh, based on what they – or compared to what they uh, sent out against the Minnesota Wild. So I do find that interesting, right? And we have people texting in, you know, Todd texts in, put Patterson with Garland and Besser. Why has Travis Green not tried that yet, right? And we have another suggestion coming in. How about Hoaglander with Pedersen and Garland? And then you put Horvat with Pearson uh, and Pod Colson. And there, there's there's obviously an appetite from fans to shake things up. And I know we also get the complaint about, oh, Travis Green throws the lines in a blender all the time. But I understand where these fans are coming from because it hasn't worked yet, right? And I, I, I do, I, as much as I understand the desire to just throw everything in a blender and try some new combinations out, I also get why they are have been so far committed to having Garland and Pearson and Horvat together, right? Because you want to build that chemistry. And then, as we said, you all of a sudden you only have four centers, so you kind of have to split up Pedersen and Miller to start the game. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, Drancer, but when a team is having problems getting to those dangerous areas of the ice and generating those legitimate grade-A scoring chances – Sure, maybe there's things you can do to tweak the lines or, or tweak how you're playing or what your focus is, but a lot of it just comes down to Elias Pettersson playing better, Brock Besser playing better, JT Miller playing better. Like A lot of this comes down to the Canucks' top offensive players just have to be more effective out there. Uh, no question. And this this is going to be a test, but also this is not a fresh team, right? They moved to time zone and they played last night. Yep. And they played a game that was really competitive for 60 minutes, like high-paced, um, you know, there, wa- there there wasn't any resting guys late. Like, they were fighting to the end, those teams. So, you know, this is a, a game that I tend to look at the schedule and say this is a schedule win, right? But that doesn't mean you actually get it done. Like, you no. actually have to get it done, and the Canucks will have to get it done in front of Yaroslav Halak. They'll have to get it done without Jack Rathbone in the lineup, and they'll have to get it done when their offensive form has really been lacking uh, against a team that's typically played pretty well defensively and also played pretty well containing an Edmonton power play that's just been, like, they were like 50%. Outrageous. They yeah, were 50% going into that game against Philadelphia. It doesn't even make sense. And, you know, so that's going to be a big test, too, for the Canucks. Their power play has done probably better 
uh, in terms of results than it's looked, right? Like, it, it's one of those where the results are fine. Yes. Like, plus 20%, like, by a lot. And then fans talk about the power play like it's a huge As if problem. It's a major issue. Yeah. And, and, and I they're get it. not wrong. Yes, I get like, it. they're not wrong. Like, it's one of those things where, yeah, if you just look at the stat sheet and go 19.9%, like, that's fine. Not bad. Not bad. That's fine. Great. But then you're ignoring the potential it has to be really good, which it clearly does and clearly so far is not doing on a regular basis. And we, we're still at the stage of the season where, okay, they're clicking in 19% or whatever it is, but you can go back and kind of look through the power play goals they've scored and. You know, last time they played Philadelphia, right? Elias Pettersson got a goal on the power play that really had no business going in. That was a Carter Hart gift to Elias Pettersson, right? So you you change a couple of those, and all of a sudden the percentage drops a lot, and you get maybe more uh, a, a more accurate reading of where that man advantage unit is right now for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, speaking of the power play units, I know this will come as you know, no, um, not not a lot. Not a lot of people will be excited to hear this, but at morning skate today, uh, Alex Chason still skating on the first power play power play unit with Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, J.T. Miller, and Quinn Hughes. Brock Besser still lining up on the second power play unit. So it does seem like seems as like as, as long as Alex <laughs> Chason, as long as Alex Chason is in the lineup, Travis Green is going to try to get the most out of him and put him on leading that unit. power play goal scorer for there the Vancouver go. Canucks, Alex Chason. He's the only Canucks player with multiple power play goals. He stays don't, at the net hey, front. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, I'm until until you put Tyler Myers there. You want a big-bodied right-handed shot to stand in front of the net like Tyler Myers. He's six foot eight. Do the Chara thing. This <laughs> one. I mean, there's, there's people out. There. I wasn't being serious. There, there's <laughs> people out there who will who will tell you that Tyler Myers should have been a forward. I don't agree <laughs> with that, but no, I, I don't think we're quite. Uh, I don't think we're quite down uh, down the rabbit hole that much just yet. Um, well, I'm, I'm here for the outside the box ideas. Yeah, so okay. there you go. Hey, they, they, lose, they lose a couple more games. Travis Green might be right there with you yeah, on the break, outs, gla- those break glass the in case ideas. of emergency. Tyler Myers net front. Let's go. <laughs> Oh, man, I can't believe the Bruins used to do that with Char. It, it worked. I bet he had the hardest shot in the league. Yeah, but they had Tory Krug. It didn't matter. It was yeah. great. That power play unit was great. Uh, okay, let's get back to I Canucks can't believe here. Chicago tried it with John Scott yes, in the 20, that is 2011 fair. Stanley Cup playoffs. That's ridiculous. That is completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. You are absolutely right about that. Okay, it's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Let's get back to business. I should mention also, the Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. You mentioned Yaroslav Halak gets uh, in net. Certainly didn't feel like Thatcher Demko had a poor game against Minnesota, but it also, also wasn't the kind of performance where you look at it and say, oh, he has to get the game. And I know Francesco Aquilini had the tweet about hoping that uh, somebody on the team will buy Thatcher Demko dinner after that performance. But, again, it yeah, was not full. It was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's probably still just digesting the steak dinner he had yeah. on somebody else's dime last night. But it, it was not the type of performance where you say, oh, man, he has to be in the crease the next game. So no major surprise still early in the season. You want to get both goalies games. You want to manage his workload. So it's going to be Halak that gets the start tonight. Um, We talked about it on the show yesterday, the potential changes to the defense that the Canucks could roll out 
going into this Philadelphia game because it was a really tough night against the Wild for Jack Rathbone. And, and I thought the, the Burroughs-Rathbone pair, to a certain extent, had a, had a tough night, but a lot of it you could put directly at the feet of the rookie Jack Rathbone. And in morning skate tonight, it was it was interesting because you had Oliver ekman Larson, and Tyler Myers together. No surprise there. Uh, Quinn Hughes was with Tucker Pullman to start. Now, of course, Pullman left the Minnesota Wild game. You said on the show yesterday you didn't get the sense it was that serious. Pullman started morning skate with the Canucks, although he had to leave, and the latest word is that he'll be a game-time decision for the game against Philly tonight. And then Kyle Burrows and Luke Shen were the third pairing for the Canucks. So I thought what we might see is both Burrows and Jack Rathbone get a seat, go to the press box, and you'd have Hunt and Shen both come in and be the third pairing together. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, Travis Green is is one of those coaches he really, really likes to have right-handed shots on the right side and left-handed shots on the left side at least exploring the possibility of having two right-handed shots on that third pairing of Burroughs and Shen. Yeah, although Pullman's uncertain status now throws that yes. into doubt. Yeah. And as the Canucks went to uh, rinsing players, right, which is always a good indication that a player is not playing, it was solely Jack Rathbone yeah. getting skated long after morning skate ended by Nolan Baumgartner. So that would suggest that Hunt would be in in the event that Pullman can't go and that Rathbone, no matter what, will not play tonight. Um, you know, n- not a huge deal so long as that absence isn't too long, right? I mean, the fact is is that this team needs Rathbone. Like, they, Rathbone does one of the things that this team in particular seems to struggle at the most when things are going poorly for them, which is breaking the puck out. Uh, this team can get stuck in the mud a little bit in their own end. Rathbone helps in that area that is their biggest weakness, so... Yep. You know, makes sense to sit him after a, after a tough game, but over the long haul, I don't think there's any question that this team needs Jack Ryan. No, and they need him to be at his best, right, which he wasn't against Minnesota. So I yep. think this is just part of the process for Jack Rathbone as a rookie in the NHL, right? Okay, look, you had a really rough game. As a texter pointed out to us yesterday, you know, he played every preseason game, so he's played the most hockey on the team. Get the guy a rest, get him a chance to kind of take stock and reset. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. You're absolutely right, though. He brings an element of offensive pop, uh, of the ability to move the puck, a dynamic element that the other guys at the bottom of the Canucks defensive depth chart just really don't bring. Brad Hunt has a little bit of that, right? Brad Hunt can move the puck, he can skate, he can do some things, but Jack Rathbone, the ceiling is so much higher ultimately. And again, I, I think it's it's very similar to the conversation that we've been having Drancer around Vasily Podkolzin, right? Where it's, okay, yeah, you have to make sure you're icing the best lineup for you to win. And when you're down a game, maybe that, or you're down a goal or two goals and you're chasing the game, Maybe that means you you don't have the confidence to put Vasily Podkolzin out there. I understand that. But you also have to be mindful of the upside that both Podkolzin and Rathbone have. You know, that's not two or three years away from helping you, right? That, that could be two months away from helping you. And how do you jumpstart that process so that eventually this season you have the full faith that Podkolzin, that Rathbone, that these young players can be out there in key moments helping you win games. And look, I'm open to the idea that a scratch here or there early in the season is part of it, but you don't want it to become a pattern necessarily with either player. You don't, but you also need the young players, if they're going to play, to be capable of helping you win, right? And yep. so, you know, the, the there's a key balance. Like, to this point in the season, I think Jack Rathbone has helped the Canucks more than he's hurt them. The other night, I don't think he did, right? And so, you know, 
he is going to probably have to earn his way into the lineup, and this is going to be a chance for a guy like Luke Shen, right, who, who partly signed in Vancouver so that he'd have an opportunity to play and has only gotten into one game yep. to show that, hey, like, you know, you can't win without me. You need me, right? So, the, I mean, that's the thing about the NHL. Like, everyone wants to see the young guys play, right? But at the end of the day, this team has playoff ambitions. So if they're not helping you win, right, it, it – does sort of create a different dynamic. It's kind of incumbent on Rathbone when he does get back in now to make sure he doesn't miss that shot. I think that's partly why you send players some messages, why there are sometimes consequences for mistakes, right? So that players begin to understand what they have to do to stay in the lineup. I think that's an important part of learning in this league is getting a sense for how cruel it can be, right? Um, Even if you are a prized young asset for an organization. It's a good point. I think a lot of fans sometimes tend to roll their eyes at the idea of, oh, he's teaching this kid a lesson. Like, why? Why? This kid doesn't need a lesson. He had a bad game. Just get out there. He'll be better next game. But it's a good point you make about just how incredibly competitive the NHL is, and especially the bottom of the roster in the NHL, right? Like, there is so – there are so the, – the margins between somebody who's the 13th forward on a team or the 12th forward on a team and somebody who ends up in the, in the AHL are incredibly thin. Incredibly yeah. thin, right? And I do think – there's something to be said for driving home to a young player. Okay, great. You're you're in the NHL. You've made the NHL. We're really excited about you. We think you have a great future. But it's not time to coast. You know what I mean? You still have to grind. You still have to be looking over your shoulder for the veterans who are desperate to stay in the NHL. And that's something that's going to be happening with Jack Rathbone here tonight. Yeah. As, as you said, you hope that what he understands is – I have to I have to be making winning plays out there. I have to be moving the needle for the team to to stay in the lineup because they have legitimate options behind me. Right. Yeah. And and he has for the most part, right? Like yep. that's the other thing is that that's, that's a bar that Rathbone has cleared in every game this season until Tuesday night when two of his mistakes were pretty key in why the club ended up losing by a goal, right? I mean, yep, straight up. And so, you know, removing a player in that circumstance, I don't think you can sort of look too hard at it like it, I, sometimes things are complicated like no, that's to, what happens trying to yeah. teach on the on the fly in the nhl while, while you're developing young players and some things are really simple and this one is really simple um you know the pod colson situation remains a little bit more complicated in part because i still don't think we have a sense for what the club's plan is like that's that's part of it right with Jack Rathbone, he came and he earned a spot, right? He, he had to beat out Ole Olevi. They traded Ole Olevi. They, they sort of made space for Rathbone to be on this team because it was his job. He'd won it. With Pod Colson, you know, he had every shot to win a top nine lineup spot yep. at training camp. He skated there a ton in preseason, and he sort of comes out of camp on the fourth line, and they're kind of in this situation where it doesn't feel like they have a sense of how to – use him at the NHL level or how he is useful to them at the NHL level. And so we get caught in this no man's land where he's playing with skilled players on the second line for one period. But when the game ratchets up in terms of leverage, he ends up dropping down the yep. lineup and, and they haven't enunciated to fans or to media sort of what the long-term plan is for this guy. So you get into sort of a different like Rathbone being scratched. That makes sense. He, he earned his job. Like he is literally this team's, third LD on the depth chart, and he had a bad game, and he's coming out simple, easy. We see that all the time. Yep. Pod Colson, what's going on, is not simple. It's not easy, and it hasn't been explained to anybody. Uh, so, you know, it becomes a little bit difficult to interpret, and I understand why there's more heat 
on that situation from fans. I think not only is it understandable, I don't even think it's misplaced. The club at some point needs to have a consistent role for Pod Colson, one would think, if they want to maximize his second half returns. And you get the sense, as you say, Drancer, they, they haven't made it clear to fans what the plan is. It's possible they don't know, right? That they're still trying to figure out exactly. <laughs> it's and possible. I, it's yes. likely. I, I, and I don't say that as this, <laughs> this major piece of criticism. Oh, yeah. they don't even have a plan yet. I mean, I think they're still trying Why to not? get a sense of. That's a major piece of criticism. I, I think they're still trying to get a sense of, you know, what they have on their hands and what the best way to use him is. And you look at him <laughs> today, you know, getting still getting the chance to skate with JT Miller and Brock Besser. I wonder how much of that is just a lack of options available to Travis Green, right? Because let's not forget, Vasily Buckholzin had the low ice time for the Canucks last game, right? And he had that one shift in the third period. Yep. Didn't go very well, right? Nope. And so in, in a different circumstance, <laughs> no, I could see him coming right back out of the lineup tonight, right? If they had, you know, if Tyler Mott was healthy, right? If Justin Dowling was healthy, I could easily see Vasily Podkolzin going back to the press box tonight. So I, I think his... His placement with JT Miller and Brock Besser is almost more an example of, well, who else are you going to put there, right? Like, if you if you want to keep Garland, Horvat, and Pearson together, and you want to have Hoaglander with Pedersen just to have, you know, two legitimate skill guys skating together, you don't want to put Pod Colson and Pedersen together at this point, well, who's your option then to skate alongside JT Miller and Brock Besser? The only guy with any sort of legitimate offensive upside that you have left is Vasily Pod Colson. It just puts that player, as we've discussed, in a really, really difficult position. It looks great in morning skate. You're like, oh, hey, that's a great opportunity for him. Mm-hmm. Then the game starts, and it's, it's a bit different for him. Totally. Well, and one other thing that I wonder is a factor because of what Green said post-game on Tuesday. He said, you know, I, I probably kept him on the bench too long, right? It, because he was playing so infrequently, I don't know that he's getting docked or evaluated um, as harshly for his mistake on the third goal as he might have were he irregular, right? Like, that's another thing is, you know, part of being in the flow of a game is having feel for that game. And if you don't have feel for that game and then make a mistake on your first shift in 15 minutes, it's kind of a different thing, especially for a younger player, right? For a fourth liner, a little bit different. You need to be prepared. That's part of your, you know, but, but expecting a guy in his sixth or fifth NHL game to have that kind of a mature sense for, uh, staying in the game without being in the game, you know, that's unreasonable. So I wonder if that's sort of a factor too. And at some point, perhaps they'll find a sweet spot for Pod Colson's usage. I think partly that will come from his sort of development too, right? Like he'll get to a point where he's an asset over 10 minutes as opposed to, you know, a, a player who at the moment, despite the shot, despite winning some battles, despite the work rate, right? Um, the Canucks are not performing well in the minutes no. that he's getting to this point. Uh, although I did think they did on Tuesday night, like Tuesday night. I don't know what more he could have done than he did in that first period to stay in the lineup, especially considering that was the one offensive line that seemed to be giving Minnesota any trouble at all. Um, and and he still ended up seeing his minutes decline. Like for me, that game was the one where like to this point, I've sort of looked at the pod goals situation and thought it makes sense. He's not helping skill lines you know, drive play yep. and, yep. you know, he should play with fourth liners and on and on. But last night he comes in, plays – or so last night, Tuesday night, he comes in, plays well. That that line's the only one going, and it's still and he still sees his minutes diminish as the game continues. That, to me, was like a bit of a canary in the coal mine, and I'm curious to see if the usage is similar again tonight. And if it is, 
I think the club has a really serious conversation that they have to have about what they're where, going to do with him going forward. Where he's going to play. It is, it's, again, we've made the point, but it, it's it's a, a poison chalice, right, playing with Miller and Besser because you just always know your spot is very easily going to be taken by Elias Pettersson uh, when the going gets tough. But your point about, you know, ultimately, despite the flashes, despite the goal, despite the skill that he has, he has not really helped move the needle for the team yet. It's an important point, and that's the big difference between Bob Colson and Rathbone for me, is that Rathbone has contributed to positive results for the team when he's been out there consistently, which is why I expect this just to be a, a very, very short stint in the press box for him. And Leaf hater Steve agrees. He texts in, sometimes all, a player, Steve. <laughs> sometimes all a player like Rathbone needs is to watch a game from upstairs. Rathbone is smart. It'll but only is that take true? one game to snap him back to where we need him to be. I know. It, it's, is it about watching guys a game from even, upstairs? Guys don't or even is it just watch about the game resting? from upstairs. Like, yeah. People, guys, lots of guys work out. You know, lots of guys just stay down and work out. You know what I mean? And, like, eat popcorn. Like, there's so much video. Guys are watching so much video whether they're in the lineup or not. I have this habit of sort of questioning things I've heard too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it'll do them well to watch a game in the press. First of all, I'm probably not going to watch the game in the press box. <laughs> Secondly, how do we know? Like, is there yeah. some barometer of scratching? It sounds like a convenient excuse for a hockey coach, it's, right? I think there's. I think there can be value in a scratch for a player like Jack Raffle, but probably not because he's getting a bird's eye view of the game, right? Like they already <laughs> do that. It's they get that on video, right? Like, right. If he's getting any benefit, it's not because it's probably he's rest. literally in the exactly. It's probably rest, rest, like a, a mental rest. break, a chance to reset, well, all of that. And yeah. it's why, like after the Canucks had a tough performance against the Wild on. Tuesday, right? They have a day off yesterday, yeah. right? And and I see all this criticism, you know, oh, like, how, yeah, oh, sure, schedule a day off after yeah. your team no-showed versus Minnesota, yeah. and it's like, here's the thing, the Wild, the Flyers played last night, the Canucks didn't practice, you know what I mean? Like, yep. that's a perfect way to use rest as a weapon, and that I believe in, like, if there's value to a player who's never, like, Jack Rathbone played 16 professional games last season, right? The season before that, he was in college, played 35, 40 games a year, mostly on weekends. The grinds of an NHL schedule are new to him. If he's going to benefit from having a scratch at any point, it's because he's going to have a few days away from the grinding physical demands that this league requires. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. As a reminder, you can always find us in podcast form as well. Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, do whatever, leave a review, give us five stars. Five stars only, please. Do whatever you have to do because it makes a big, big difference, and we really do appreciate the support. We will be back tomorrow on air at 11 a.m. Up next here on 650, it's myself and Bick Nazar with Sportsnet today on a game day for the Vancouver Canucks. They're getting set to take on the Philadelphia Flyers here at Rogers Arena. That's coming up next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.